Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for First St. Charles United Methodist Church in downtown St. Charles, Missouri. We are so glad that you're here, and it's our prayer that you feel safe, welcome, and wanted in this space. If you're interested in finding out more about us or supporting our ministries, you can connect with us online at firststcharlesumc.org. Today's scripture comes from the first book of John, chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the living of these words, we are made disciples of Christ. Glory be to God. When my brother and I were in the throes of adolescence, seven, eight, nine years old, my dad started playing this game with us where we would turn out all the lights in the house. We would count to 50 while he went to hide. One, two, three, four, five, 50. Ready or not, here we come. With flashlights in hand, we'd go on a search for him. Always, always, he'd be, be behind a corner or a door somewhere. His favorite place was the bathroom door at the end of a long hallway. Carefully, cautiously, we'd peek around the corner, and he'd jump out. It was scary dad. He'd shake his head so hard that his cheeks would move violently from side to side. We'd giggle and laugh and run, run, run away. When my kids were about the same age, I introduced them to the game. It was great fun. I think for now, I'll just stick with playing peekaboo with my one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. It may be more age-appropriate. Peekaboo, I see you. Where's Maddie? There she is. I see you. Always she'll giggle and laugh as I reveal myself there all along. God's love was revealed among us, says our Scripture. It's not something that we discover on our own. It's not scary, Dad. It's loving, Dad. The initiative comes from God, and God wants nothing less than for us to know that we are loved. God's love was revealed among us God sees us, and we are loved, God's love, there all along. For many, God's love remains hidden, maybe even scary. Oftentimes, it's because all that we've had modeled for us is neglect or abuse. Maybe it's because we felt isolated, alone. Maybe because of some trauma or tragedy has hidden God's love from us. 
The fact that we don't know ourselves to be lovable keeps many from seeing it. Many, many of us are hidden from the love of God that is present in plain sight, hidden away by our own sin and brokenness. Some are among us not seeing God's love because of suffering that has come like a mountain in our lives and we can't see our way beyond it and back to a God who loves us. There's still others and it pains us to say it. Others have been kept from seeing God's love because of a religion that is toxic. You know what it is to feel a religion that is fear-based, judgmental, conditioned on our conforming? Hate the sin and love the sinner, it's said with sanctimonious piety. And all we can hear out of that is hate, hate, hate. Both the irony and tragedy are those forms of religion that have hidden God's love like a light under a bushel basket because of who and how some persons have come to love others. Today, we continue our series, Three Big Little Words. We've been looking at three little words that have big impact, big power in our lives. They're not so much the power to create weal and woe, as Scripture says, but rather to elicit weal and wonder. I wonder if there are any words more powerful than having heard God say, I love you. St. Augustine gets us there with a couple of observations. He once observed that Jesus loved each one he had ever met as if there were none other in all the world to love. In other words, Jesus radically individualized the affection he acted out toward others. Instead of never seeing the trees for the forest, as the old adage goes, Jesus reversed that process and never failed to focus on the particular and the unique in each of us. This represents an extraordinary commitment and discipline, especially because even in Jesus' day, He came in contact with many, many people and, as do we, must have found it tempting to lump people together in categories and classes and to allow the forest mentality to blind him to the genuine uniqueness of each one of us. However, I don't think I'm being totally naive to say that even though such an ideal is tremendous, a tremendous reach, it is within the possibility of every one of us. Indeed, it was His command that we love one another. We'll get to that next week. For now, maybe you know the little story about the boy who's trying to learn the Lord's Prayer and one night as he knelt by his bed, these words came out. Our Father who are in heaven, how do you know my name? 
such individualized affection may always remain a mystery to us mortals, but one that God desperately wants to see revealed. St. Augustine takes us further when he says that not only did Jesus love each one of us, that He is met as if there were none other in all the world to love, Jesus loved all as He loved each. The way He loved was not only individualized, but it was incredibly universal. I don't know which one of these qualities is more amazing, but once again, the great saint's description remains true to the memories that were given of Jesus in all four of the canonical Gospels. Those eyes out of which He looked when He lived on this earth were never filled with contempt or disdain. Even when the words Jesus spoke assumed a note of harshness, it was because of a concern that He felt for those whom He addressed. They were never words of hatred. The opposite of love isn't anger or hostility, but indifference. Yet, there's not one example in all the Gospels of Jesus ever turning away from another as if what happened to that one made no difference to Him. Aren't Augustine's words such a wonderful description of that unique way Jesus loved and invites us to love also. Jesus loved each one He ever met as if there were none other in all the world to love, and He loved all as He loved each. You are loved. We are loved. Right off the bat, our scripture today calls us beloved, and it locates God's love in several places, in our birth in God, in our knowledge of God, in God's nature, because God is love, verse 8. In the incarnation, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him, verse 9. Ultimately, God's love is seen, revealed, in Christ's suffering for us as God sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 9. Uh, throughout the history of Christian faith, there have been quite a number of ways persons have tried to get their heads and hearts around the meaning of Christ's atoning sacrifice. If I can, how about if we take a breezy walk through some of the main ones in a rough approximation of their popular appearance in Christian thinking. The notion of Christ as victor about 100 A.D. The earliest Christians saw the work of Christ as a victory over the forces of evil, a cosmic contest with Satan in which, to quote a more modern work, love wins. This was the earliest and for a thousand years the dominant model among Christians. Around 
200 A.D., though, there appears what has come to be known as the ransom theory. Another early model took the contest with evil and couched it as a hostage situation. Humanity is in bondage to the devil, and a ransom must be paid. As Gregory of Nyssa put it, God baited a fish hook with the flesh of Jesus, hiding His divinity with His humanity. Divinity was the hook. He thought He could swallow Him. Humanity He could digest. Divinity He couldn't. Or, as St. Augustine put it, the cross was a mousetrap baited with the blood of Jesus. When He died, the trap snapped shut and caught the devil. The devil, as they say, is in the details of Christ's crosshairs on the cross. Around 1100 A.D., there came about what has come to be known as the satisfaction theory. Reflecting the feudal system of the medieval ages, about 1100 A.D., Anselm of Canterbury argued that our sin wounds the honor of God. God may be loved, but God must also be holy. The offense or debt has to be satisfied in order to save us from the wrath of God. Almost immediately, a counter-argument came from Peter Abelard, who said that it isn't God who needs to change, it's us. In His life, in His teachings, and in His death, Christ shows us the extent of God's love. Think of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. A change is wrought in me. Jesus becomes the paradigmatic human being, our example. He shows us the way of love. About uh, 200 years later, John Dunn Scotus, informed by Eastern Orthodox thought, built his argument on the pre-existent cosmic Christ described in Colossians, Ephesians, and in the prologue to John's Gospel to say that in the Incarnation, Jesus didn't come to change the mind of God about humanity, but to change the mind of humanity about God. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and I know this is going to come as a surprise and a shock to some, but it wasn't until about 1,500 years into Christian history that along comes a lawyer by the name of John Calvin to popularize an image of God as a judge where there is a legal penalty that Christ paid on our behalf. A couple of hundred years after that, would you be surprised that John Wesley, though he would affirm John Calvin, also differed from him in offering a couple of different models where God is seen as the source of our growth and our healing. 
the primary image for Wesley isn't that of God as a judge, but of a parent loving, nurturing, healing. In Christ's atonement, we are made whole. Know your disease, know your cure, he famously urged. Well, that's a breezy walk through our Christian history. All of these seven models or theories or metaphors can be said to be biblical in as much as they pull on different parts and pieces of the greater biblical witness. To them, I'd add an eighth, the most recent contribution of those writers who want to build on a Trinitarian understanding, to say that in the death of Christ, an event occurred in the inner life of God such that for the first time in history, through the death of the Son, the Father experienced suffering, death, God forsakenness. There is now no place that God's love won't go, won't reach for the sake of each of us and for the sake of all of us. For me, and this is the testimony of my faith, only when all of these are taken together can they even begin to claim a more complete biblical foundation. Together, they point to that greater mystery that is revealed in the whole of Scripture. God loves us each. And God loves us all. Enough to suffer whatever it would take for our sake. However it occurs, objectively, we remember the mighty acts in Jesus Christ and we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. All of this, all of it, so that we might know God has seen us. We matter to God. God loves us. God loves you. Peekaboo. Now that's something to laugh and giggle about.